We're in 1 Peter, and we are looking to finish our study in this book, at least 1 Peter. We're going to be moving on to 2 Peter, of course, in our whole series of Steadfast in the Faith. And so please make your way to 1 Peter chapter 5 as we look to wrap up this chapter here for us. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, and this chapter has really been our theme. Our whole theme through the study has been Uh, steadfast in the faith. And so we're going to be just kind of covering that here today as we look at a few things. And we're going to be seeing Peter now because this last chapter is interesting. Uh, As many epistles that were written, that kind of last chapter was sort of that concluding chapter where as much as us writing an email as we're trying to finish it or whatever it is, a letter, you know, just there's all these thoughts that start coming out rapid fire. We just start sharing our heart and all these things. And that's kind of what a lot of the epistles do. Paul does that in his writings. Sometimes it just, those last chapter uh, is just like a rapid fire of great counsel, wisdom, uh, things that we should be applying. And Peter's no different. He's kind of doing the same thing for us here. And so we're going to be seeing here uh, four things as we kind of go through our outline here. We're going to look at in verses one to four, shepherding the flock. Then we're going to see in verses 5 to 7, submitting to others. We're going to see in verses 8 to 11, being steadfast in the faith. And then just the final remarks there in verses 12 to 14. So shepherding the flock, uh, submitting to others, steadfast in the faith. And then final remarks. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. And it tells us there, The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also partake of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Let me just stop right there. So Peter, as we see here, first addresses the elders who are among his, his audience, his readers. Now, remember, Peter's addressing believers who have been scattered all around who have been undergoing persecution, you know, difficulty, suffering, and they've had to kind of be pilgrims and sojourners in the world as they've been scattered abroad. So Peter's not really addressing one church, a specific church, but more so he's addressing the people that make up the churches, just as we're kind of doing here today. As we are scattered all abroad, but here's the reality, we are the church still, and we continue to be the church, and Peter's addressing the people, not a specific church, but the people who are the church, and he's addressing those who are to be overseers of them. Now, in the New Testament, we often see these terms elders, bishops, shepherd or pastor, kind of used interchangeably. In other words, the form of government you have in a church isn't a a perfect model where the Bible is very clear. Listen, if you're going to have government in the church, this is how you need to do it. The Bible doesn't lay out specific ways how you govern the church, but more so what the Bible does is it gives parameters, direction, and instruction for those who are governing or leading the church. More so, God's concerned not with the way you do it, but the people that are doing it and their character and their heart in doing so. And Peter's going to be addressing those things. He's not addressing the style of government that needs to happen, but more so the people that are leading. Because when you have people that are leading in a way where they are serving God, being submissive to God, then it doesn't matter what kind of government you have, it's going to be well. But in any kind of government, you can have people that are not doing those things. And no matter what kind of government you have, if your leaders are not following the word of God, then it's not going to be a very pleasant form of government within the church. So Peter gets into these things here as we, as we see. Now notice that Peter calls himself, right in verse 1, I who am a fellow elder. He calls himself a fellow elder and not the head elder, right? Many like to consider Peter as being the first pope. He's kind of like, you know, the, the, the head elder over all the churches. And that's where people have kind of set up Peter. You go to some places in Israel and, and especially Capernaum where, you know, the home of Peter. And there's a big statue of Peter there where people love to come and kiss the feet of the statue, you know, and, and pass on disease and that kind of thing. But uh, this is what happens is, is people begin to elevate Peter. But Peter doesn't do that. Peter calls himself, I'm a fellow elder. I'm just, I'm just one of you guys. Just like an, an elder, just like the rest of them. But he's an elder that had some insider advantage, having walked with Jesus and witnessed the things that he did. 
That's why he wants to exhort these elders. Peter has something to pass on from his own experiences that he knows is going to be of help and benefit to what the elders are facing right now. So many of the things that we encounter in life, you see, are meant to be passed on for the admonition and exhortation of others. It tells us in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3 to 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. I hope those verses are going up on the live stream. I can't tell from here. So hopefully they are all rocking on there. You can see those verses. That's great. So what were some of the things that Peter witnessed? Well, he witnessed the very sufferings, it says, of Christ. He saw Jesus undergo that unfair trial, the beatings, the sleep deprivation, the torture on that fateful night there. Think about Peter denying Jesus in that very hour, right? Uh, he, he's... He's going through all these things, seeing Jesus, but then he's having to deal with the inner turmoil he's facing. And remember, it says that Jesus, at that third time that Peter denied Jesus, Jesus looked right at him. I mean, think about the guilt that Peter's been carrying himself. But Peter also encountered the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus. So much so that he could say, not only have I been a witness of the sufferings of Christ, but I'm also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Peter's not sitting here going, man, I hope I didn't blow it on that night. I hope that I will one day get to be a part. No, he says, I'm also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Despite Peter's setback, he had a most awesome comeback. And he's ultimately looking forward to Christ coming back. He's not worried about that day. He's excited knowing that it's when he will be a partaker of that glory. And don't forget, Peter had a glimpse of that glory. This is not just some kind of hope he's thinking, man, I, I don't know what that's going to be like. I hope it's going to be all right. No, he saw in Matthew 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration, he saw the glory that Jesus always had that had been simply concealed by his humanity where Jesus let that shine through for a moment there with James, John, and Peter. Wasn't Peter's finest hour as he kind of stumbled a bit on what to say, what to do? We'll get to that another time. In fact, in Second Peter, we'll revisit that scene. But Peter saw the glory that was awaiting him. He saw it revealed through Jesus. So Peter has an idea of what's coming. And he's instructing others now to simply stay the course. So he takes his time to encourage and instruct these elders. You see, some of these elders might have begun to think that it wasn't worth it in the days they were living in to continue on, especially in that role, because the church is being persecuted, right? Heavy persecution has come against them. And, and not only are Christians being, you know, persecuted or thrown in jail or worse, they're, they're being killed off. If they're doing that to the Christians, what are they going to do to those that are leading those Christians? I mean, the Bible says, strike the shepherd and the sheep scatter. So no doubt the persecution against the leaders, if, if, if those that are bringing on the persecution can get a hold of one of the leaders, how much more is that going to disrupt everything that's going on? So these elders are sitting here going, man, I've got a big target on my back. This is tough stuff I'm going through and having to face. But Peter wants to encourage them, stay the course. Hold on. It's all going to be worth it, you see. These elders needed that encouragement. They needed to hear that this glory that is soon to be revealed far more makes up for whatever they're going to encounter in this life. And I love, and I say this verse often because I love it. I think we need to be reminded of it often in Romans 8, verse 17 to 18. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and join heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with them, that we may be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this world are, uh, of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Do you see that? We're heirs of Christ. And so that if we suffer with them, that we may also be glorified together. And, and Paul writes in Romans, he's weighing it on a scale. I can take all the sufferings that I might go through in the world, and Paul went through a lot of them. I can put those on the scale, and the glory that's coming our way is far going to outweigh and tip the scales in the favor of what's coming and what we're going through right now. In other words, Paul and Peter here are saying, listen, my friends, it is all 
going to be worth it. When we sit there in glory in that day, we're not going to look back and go, oh, Lord, why did I have to? No, you're going to realize it was all with a purpose and it was far worth it. What we go through in this temporary little little vapor that James talks about. Just a little vapor is our life in comparison to eternity. And eternity is going to be a long time, my friends. Heaven is going to be grand. Stay the course. So Peter lays down some good instructions for these elders now. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. Let's, let's go over verse 2 again. Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So first of all, they are called to shepherd the flock. That's what a pastor is to do. In fact, the word pastor comes from this, this word for shepherd, poimeno. Poimeno meaning to, to shepherd, to pastor, to, to lead, to tend. And that's what a shepherd does. He feeds the flock. He takes care of the flock. He keeps them safe from predators and from themselves, from, from wandering off and getting into trouble. This is what Peter was commissioned to do. Remember what Jesus said in, in John 21, verse 15 to 17. So when they'd eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. This is what Peter was commissioned to do, to be a shepherd, caring for, tending to, and feeding the flock. Now, if a person is going to be an elder, an overseer, a pastor, they better be sure they're doing so because they are called. See, it can't be something that's done out of compulsion or force or or something you feel you just have to do. But Peter says, let it be willingly. See, this is something you're doing out of a sense of obligation or just duty or because you drew the short straw out of your congregation and you're now appointed the elder the leader of your church it's not going to be good it's not going to be good for you it's not going to be good for the people this is something that a, a, a pastor dare not walk into an elder dare not walk into unless they sense the extreme calling of god that they cannot shake because it's not going to be a fun experience unless you know You are called to this. This is something that God has commissioned you to do. I mean, being a shepherd is not not always fun work. Chasing after the sheep. Stepping in in sheep stuff. It's not always a, a fun, enjoyable time. But it's fun when you realize, this is what God has for me. This is what God has called me to do. And there's great pleasure when we follow in obedience to the will of God and to what God has called us to. So don't let it be done by compulsion out of just a sense of obligation. Well, nobody else is going to do it, so I'm just going to have to do it. No, it's got to be something you do willingly. And you do because the Lord is leading you and calling you in that. And this role should never be something where you use it for selfish gain, let alone dishonest gain, as Peter says there at the end of verse 2. Sadly, we see that happen time and time again among some of these elders, church leaders, evangelists, whatever it is, where they use this position for filthy lucre, for dishonest gain. I mean, how many private jets does one person need? I'll be content with just one. All I need is one. I don't need two or three. I mean, that's ridiculous, right? Just one is, is quite okay with me. But ridiculous when you see these people that are striving for more and more and using this position to make their lives comfortable. All the while, while they're breaking the backs of those that are are, are following them. These people have ripped off God's people for their own personal gain. And and they're going to have some answer to do when they stand before God that day. And I'll tell you this much. I do not want to be anywhere near that scene. Because these people that have claimed to be commissioned of God and are using this position for their own gain, God is going to bring an end to that one day. And it's going to be not pretty. 
And I don't want to be a part of that. See, I come here with great fear and trembling, understanding that this is something that God has called me to. And I need to be sure that I'm honoring God. And that I'm being a good steward with what God has given me. You see, what does Peter say? He says, shepherd the flock of God. This is not my church. This is not my people. This is God's church. To God's people that I've just been called as a, a steward over to oversee and to do so willingly as I seek to please the Lord. Do so not for a dishonest gain, but eagerly. And, and that is implied to be eagerly serving the Lord. That's what my desire is here is to be not serving myself or even just serving people, but to be serving God. And as I'm serving God, then I'm going to be serving people. I'm going to be tending to, feeding, caring for the flock, because they're God's people. And as I seek to serve God eagerly, then that's going to be, and should be, the natural byproduct of that. Elders and overseers are not to consider themselves above the people. I'm thankful for elders that we have here in this church, for pastors Randy and Rob, for Pete and Brent and Nathan who serve faithfully and who I know do so humbly. They're not looking at themselves as over the people, trying to flex their muscles and wield some kind of power. No, it says here, let elders be examples to the flock. This is not a position of power, but it's a powerful position to set a model of what a servant looks like is that what jesus did wasn't jesus's words simply follow me jesus didn't say hey go and do this take care of that or get this for me jesus said follow me and just see what i do and follow that example that's how jesus led Jesus was a, a true servant leader. In fact, Peter may well have been thinking of the great example that Jesus gave in washing his disciples' feet. He modeled what a true servant leader looked like. And he said in John 13, verse 15, for I've given you an example that you should do as I've done to you. Our, our greatest sermons are often ones that are lived out. The ones that are lived out are, are, are the ones that are going to communicate the best. I'm going to be living out a sermon this afternoon titled, God Gives Sleep to Those Whom He Loves. That's what I'm going to be living out here later. It's a great sermon. I love preaching that one. But he says here, don't feed off the flock, but feed the flock and be an example to them. Many of the abuses in Christendom would be eliminated by simply obeying these three instructions in verses 2 and 3. The first would abolish all reluctance. The second would spell the end of commercialism. And the third would be the death of officialism in the church. We're all in this together, my friends. Peter, I'm just one of you. We're all in this together, serving our great shepherd. And we'll get to that in a, in a moment here. See, our motivation and safeguard in all this is that we have the expectation and the hope of Jesus coming again. And when he does, you will be rewarded for all that you have done for him. Look at verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Now, in this context, we're talking about elders, right? But this is something that everyone who uh, everyone receives who has been faithful to God, this crown of glory. Now, I like what Peter refers to Jesus as the, the chief shepherd. And that's exactly true because he's the one that we all look to and take our orders from. The earthly elders are really just under shepherds. I like the way that, that someone once put it where he said, you know, pastors, elders are really more just like sheepdogs, right? Where we're just trying to keep people rounded up and directed to Jesus. We used to have a, a dog that was part, um, like a part, what do you call him? Sheepdog? What was it? Border Collie. Is that what we had, Cole? Okay. Yeah, so that. And so we wanted to test out the theory. And, and so one day we're out in a park and my wife, Michelle, goes, hey, uh, Molly, go get the kids. And Molly started chasing the kids and just started circling around the kids to kind of gather them back to us. It was really quite something to see. Loved it. But that's kind of more like what we are as, as elders, pastors. We're just like sheepdogs where we're just trying to keep people pointed to Jesus and on track with Jesus. 
We're, we're under shepherds. He's the chief shepherd. He's the one that we're looking to. Hebrews 13, 20 calls him the great shepherd. 1 Peter 2, verse 25, just look over if you've got your Bibles. 1 Peter 2, verse 25 says, For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Speaking of Jesus, now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. So our true shepherd is returning again. And when he does, if you've been faithful, you're going to receive a, a crown of glory. That's all that he's looking for. Listen, my friends, it's not about how successful you are. It's not about how many things you've done for the Lord. It's about being faithful with what God has called you to do. And those that have been faithful in whatever area of service and, and exercising those gifts like we saw in 1 Peter 4, if you've been faithful, you're going to receive a crown of glory. This crown is the Stephanos in Greek. It was the, the laurel wreath that was given to athletes at at the public games that would go on. Now, it carried with it some prestige when you received it, but you weren't walking around with it three weeks later as you looked like you just had some wilted salad dumped on your head by a bad date. It's not going to look good. You don't carry this around forever. But in the moment, it's something great. But what does Peter say? He says that we're going to be given a crown that's meant to be, again, for reward, for how we've how we've competed or, or lived in this, in this world, not compete, that's the wrong word, but just tying it in with what the athletes went through, how you've lived, we're going to be given a crown that is not going to fade away, he says. It's going to continue. It's a crown of glory. It's not like a, a laurel wreath, looking like you got salad on your head. No, it's a crown of glory that will not fade away. In other words, again, we're going to be enjoying heaven and we're going to realize that everything we've gone through in this world well, we've been rewarded for, and we're going to enjoy that in all of eternity. Again, my friends, it'll all be worth it in the end. D- despite what you see or experience or face in this day, keep moving ahead with your eyes on our great shepherd, the chief shepherd, the one who's upholding us, taking care of us, and seeing us through, who's with us in the storm, and we'll make sure we get to safe shores. It'll all be worth it in the end. So we've seen how we're to shepherd the flock, but now we look at submitting to others. Look at verse five. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility for God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, just because Peter has been kind of calling out the elders to be aware of how they've conducted themselves it doesn't mean that everyone else is now to be watching over these elders to make sure they're following in line with what Peter said. Hey, remember what Peter said? What, what are you doing right now? Hey, I don't know if that's any good. We're not to be spiritual police now. In fact, Peter says, submit to them. Be submissive to them, especially the younger people. Especially the younger people that think they maybe know it all or have it all together, while the rest of us just go, oh man, I can't wait for them to realize that they're actually wrong. And they don't have it all together. They don't know it all. It'll come. You younger people, we love you. But, but Peter says, step back and just, you know, be, be submissive here. Be submissive to those that Jesus has appointed as overseers over you. Don't, don't be seeking to, you know, be this, this spiritual police trying to uphold what Peter said now. Just follow. Now, of course, there's times where if they're going against God's word, yeah, they need to be called out on that. I need to be called out on anything that I say or do that goes contrary to God's word. You have full reign to do so. I'm not above you. I'm with you. And there's times where I might need correction. I mean, I'm, it hasn't happened yet. I'm waiting for that day maybe. It may not come, but there might be a time where I might need correction. And it's on you to do so. And it's on me to, to listen and to get in line with God's word. But, but these overseers are to, are to lead. But... Here's something too, that not only is it younger people to submit to our elders, but again, don't let it just stop right there. All of us, Peter says, be submissive to one another. That's something that's to be a real mark of the Christian. Now, nobody's going to want to be submissive unless you first put on some humility. Because it's our pride, isn't it, that becomes the biggest stumbling block to us laying ourselves down and actually living a humble life. And it's pride that can go so easily undetected because it's our pride that says i don't have any pride i'm not i'm the most humble person around here i don't struggle with pride 
It's our pride that causes us to think that. It can go so easily undetected. And it's the thing that blocks us from truly walking in humility. Now, Charles Ellicott gives us some interesting sidelights on the sense of this text in the Greek. He says that it literally means tie yourself up in humility. In other words, we are to gather it around us like a cloak to shut out the blighting winds of pride. But there's a still more delicate shade of meaning to the word humility. Ellicott says it originally referred to a peculiar kind of cape worn by slaves. Thus, it was a badge of servitude. This implies that humility is not a mere passive quality. It includes performing selflessly any task God assigns and bringing forth now spiritual fruit. Again, with Jesus as our example, it says in John 13, verse four to five, that Jesus rose from supper and laid aside his garments. And what did he do? He took a towel and girded himself. That's that idea of putting on humility. He girded himself. After that, he poured water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Jesus literally clothed himself with humility. And he took the place of a servant, to the place of the lowest servant, and he washed the feet of his disciples. Now, some might think, but if I'm always taking the place of a servant, if I'm always the one to you know, walk in this humility, I'll never get ahead in life. I'll never get that promotion at work or, or that advancement in my field. But look at what Peter says next. He says there at the end of verse five, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. See, God's the one that raises up, that promotes and, and elevates. It's God that does that. And he does this with those that are walking in humility and faithfulness to him. Being humble will never cause you to miss out on something if God is gracing those that are humble. This, this grace speaks of the favor and the blessings of God, that God just desires to pour out his favor upon you. He gives grace to the humble. And Peter's gonna remind us in verse 10 that, that God is the God of all grace. So we'll get to that in a moment here. So what's our response to be then to these things? We'll look at verse six. Therefore, this is what Peter's, again, since we're to be submissive to another, since we're to, to put on humility, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. So our response to these things is simply humble yourself. Be humble, put on humility. And, and be careful when you think you're humble because sometimes it's our pride simply saying, oh yeah, I'm just so humble right now. I'm just so, wonder, I can't, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. Sometimes we, we have that, right? We think that. But beware of pride that might be making you think you're humble. Truly walk in humility. The best way to know how humble you are is when people begin to treat you like a servant or just mistreat you in general. How do you respond? Do you, do you get kind of riled up and think, who are you to treat me that way? Or are we walking in humility and being willing to embrace that and be an example of what humility looks like? So humble yourself. Stop thinking of yourself more highly than you should be. Typically, listen, we hold a pretty high view of ourselves, don't we? Right? We, we sometimes need to get knocked down a bit. In my own mind, I'm like six foot two. I've got the build of the rock, you know? Not a rock, you know, round and heavy. No, like the rock, the actor, right? That's in my mind. I'm walking around like I'm six foot two with the build of the rock. You know, that's what I, and then I, I put myself next to somebody and I realize I, I resemble more like a, a Jack Black than I do the rock. You know, it's kind of very contrary to what I sometimes have in my mind. We have no problem having a, a high view of ourselves. What we need to do is begin to consider others better than ourselves, as the Bible tells us in Philippians 2. How, how we need to think, have, have just kind of thinking more humbly and lowly of ourselves. So Peter says, you're to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Now there's a couple good reasons for this. First of all, because God is the creator of all. But he's also the final judge of all. And you see, there's coming a day when this hand of benevolence is going to come with judgment and wrath upon those that have rebelled and rejected him. Hebrews 10 verse 31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
But he's given each person opportunity right now to humble themselves and submit to him that they might receive life and salvation in him. Then you don't have to fear falling into his hands. In fact, that leads us to our second reason for humbling yourselves under the mighty hand of God. It's this, secondly, because he cares for you. See, God cares so much for you that he sent his son to this world. He gave up that which was most precious to him. He sent his son to this world to die on the cross to take the penalty of your sin. And, and in doing so, as we put our trust in Jesus as our savior, we can be forgiven. Forgiven of our sin, sin's no longer held against us so that we can be brought into a right relationship with God. God loves you and cares for you so much that he gave up that w- which was most precious so that you could be brought in into a right relationship with him. I hope whoever you are listening right now has received that free gift of salvation. It doesn't come through your good works, through what you do or who you are. It comes through you putting your faith in Jesus. It's a free gift. It's by grace you are saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works. Anyone should boast. Put your faith in Jesus. Trust him. God cares for you. And he's provided a way out for you not to fall into the hands of God in the day of judgment, but rather that that judgment can be meted out on his son, Jesus, so we could be spared of that judgment. He cares for you. And God calls us now to come as children of God to cast all our concerns, anxieties, and problems on him. He tells us to do that because he cares for you. He loves you. And there's something wonderful that takes place as we do this. You see, relationship then is deepened. Think of it this way. If I'm out with my kids and we're tossing a frisbee around, right? My kids were to take that frisbee and they're to cast it my way. They're to toss it my way. Now, if I were to catch that frisbee and all of a sudden run into the house and shut the door and lock it, they'd be thinking, what's going on? What are you doing? That'd be no fun, would it? No, what happens is that as they toss the frisbee to me, what do I do? I cast it back to them. And Lord willing, they're going to toss it back my way. And, I'm gonna, and, and what happens is we're just hanging out. We're laughing. We're having fun. We're conversing with one another as we're enjoying this game together. And relationship is happening. And this is what I think is in mind here when God says, cast your cares upon me. You see, we're not going to live a carefree world. We don't cast our cares and think, that's it, gone. Now I'm never going to have any care in the world. Oh, that particular care is now absorbed, taken care of by God. But guess what? There's going to be something else that might come your way down the road, which allows us then to say, man, I need to go back to God. I need to cast this to him again. I need to converse with him. I need to commune with him. I need to talk to him about this. And there's relationship that is happening and fellowship being deepened as we come with our cares. Oh, we don't fret and worry and wonder, why am I always going through cares and, and problems and struggles? No, those are opportunities for us to say, I get to go to the Lord now and bring them to him. You see, if I lived a carefree world, I would find, sadly, probably little reason to come to God and commune with him and, and fellowship with him. I hope that wouldn't be the case, but it's oftentimes in our difficulties that we recognize how much we need the Lord. And how much I need to be there abiding in him, waiting on him, resting in him, taking my cares and casting them upon him because he cares for me. I need to be reminded of that. He loves us and he wants us to bring these to him. Essentially, we have two types of care here. We see an anxious care as we're burdened down by the worries and concerns of this this life. But we have the affectionate care of God by which we can find comfort and peace. We must always remember that the affectionate care of God is always greater and stronger than the anxious cares of this world. Remember that today. You might be filled with anxiety and the cares of this world, but take it to the Lord and recognize that his affectionate care for you is far greater than any kind of anxious care you might be holding on to. Pass it on to the Lord. Cast it his way. Let him take care of that. And, and, and know that there will come another day when there's more cares, but they provide more opportunity for us to come and commune with God as we cast our cares upon him. 
So we see this submitting to one another. Now we look at this being steadfast in the faith. Look at verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So with all the trouble that these Christians were facing, not only were they to cast their cares to God, but they were now to remain sober and vigilant. To be sober means that they were to be self-controlled. They weren't to have anything else kind of influencing them. They were to be self-controlled. We're not to let sin have its way in our lives and influence what we do. And to be vigilant means that we're to be awake and alert. I hope everybody right now is, is vigilant. Look around your room. Make sure everybody's vigilant right now and awake and alert, all right? Now, it's kind of ironic that this is coming from the guy, right? Who in Jesus's greatest hour was falling asleep in the garden. Peter, who's there, who's told to watch and pray, is falling asleep. And Jesus had to continue to, to wake him up and be ready. And I think it's not only ironic, but it, it, it shows us here that Peter understands the importance of this. Because what happened next for Peter? Well, he went and got himself in a lot of trouble. He wasn't sober. He wasn't vigilant. And he recognizes now, this is of utmost importance for us in this world that we live. We need to be self-controlled, thinking straight, and alert because we have a real enemy looking to devour us. Peter was the one that said, Lord, everybody else might deny you and, and fall away, but I will never leave you. And Peter's the first one to deny him. He recognizes how we need to be self-controlled, sober, and vigilant. Now, sometimes the devil is going to come to you like a roaring lion, as Peter is describing here. I mean, the enemy's ticked off. He knows he's on borrowed time. He's looking to drag as many people to hell with him. He knows his fate, and he's just trying to bring as many down with him as he can. So oftentimes, he's like a roaring lion. I mean, he is, he is upset, right? He realizes he is not one. <laughs> he's defeated. So he's like a roaring lion. He's just looking to, to jump and devour. He wants to destroy people. But there's times where he doesn't come like a lion. Maybe he comes like that crafty serpent that we see in Genesis 3. Cunning. Very wise to trip you up. Maybe as we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, he comes as an angel of light, masquerading himself as an angel of light. You see, the enemy has ways to come and try to trick you, fool you. Sometimes he's just going to pounce and look to tear you apart. Other times he's going to look to lure you in. We need to be sober and vigilant, watchful, alert as to his tactics and understanding that we have a very real enemy at work in the world. Now the word devil is the Greek word diabolos and it means false accuser or slander. And that's exactly what Satan is looking to do. He's looking to drag our name through the mud. He's attempting to accuse you before God. But this is why you need to be now, as Peter says in verse eight, is why you need to be steadfast in the faith. Or sorry, in verse nine. Steadfast in the faith. Because the enemy is going to come to you, not, not just to God, he's going to come to you and think, listen, God doesn't love you. God doesn't care. You're not really a child of God. Look at what you're going through. If God really loves you, do you think he'd be going through this season of suffering or persecution? And it'd be so easy to think, yeah, that doesn't really make sense to me. Why am I going through this? And we need to be steadfast in the faith because Satan may say a lot of true things about you, but by faith you recognize it's all covered under the blood of Jesus. He died so that I could be forgiven, cleansed, and delivered from sin, from the penalty and power of it. Many Christians I've seen begin to listen to the lies of the enemy. Oh, you don't really deserve God. You don't deserve his grace. Look at you. You just messed up last week. Come on. You can't, you, don't, you can't call yourself a Christian. And many people begin to listen to the lies of the enemy rather than hold on to the truth of the word of God. See, when you put your faith in Jesus, you become a child of God, signed, sealed, and delivered. It's done. It's finished. So be steadfast in the faith. Don't let a lying, false accuser cause you to question what God has done for you. Draw near to God and resist the devil. And, and James says that he will flee from you. 
As you're drawing near to God, Satan's not going to be wanting to hang out in the company of God with you. He's going to flee naturally. Resist him. But resist him steadfast in the faith. When Satan comes with his lies and slander and false accusations, you just hold on to the word of God and say, you know what? All those things you might be saying about me, oh, they're, they're probably true. But guess what? It's all covered under the blood of Jesus. It's done. I'm a child of God. He's done the work to forgive me, to save me, to make me his own. So stop listening to the enemy and start listening to the truth of God's word. And stand steadfast in that faith in which we have, in what God has done for you. Now, one thing that, like I said, can cause a lot of people to question their faith is when they go through trials. Perhaps these are times where the enemy is saying, like I had said, that making you think and doubt that God really cares or God's really real or God's going to help you because why would you be going through this trial if, if God loves you? And, and, and we can begin to think, am I the only one facing this? Am I the only one going through this? Am I maybe not saved? Or is this whole Christian thing just made up? And we can begin to question these things. But Peter wants us to remember that these same hardships are experienced by other believers all around the world. This is nothing new, and it's not only on you. And we see the hope and the purpose in all of this in the next verse. Let me just finish verse 9. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So many people are going through the same things you are. Don't think it's, it's only you. Don't think that God's forsaken you. And these things are happening, but they're happening for a purpose. Look at verse 10. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, God is the God of all grace, and it's his grace that we need to help us get through it all. Now, God doesn't just have a little bit of grace. His grace doesn't run out and need to get replenished. He's the God of all grace. In other words, all the grace that you need, all the grace that I need, all the grace that our brother or sister needs, God's got enough to provide and supply the grace that we need to keep moving forward and making it in this world through the difficulties, through the trials, through the hardships. He's got more than enough to carry you through. Trust him and rely on him because this trial you're facing is meant to do a greater work in you. It's a work of As Peter says, perfecting, establishing, strengthening, and settling you. So it reminds me of the story of a man that was so sick that he couldn't even afford to to get to town to see the doctor. The man lived in the deep backwoods in an old log cabin and his condition seemed to grow worse each day. Out in front of his cabin was a huge boulder. The rock was massive in front of his place. One night, in a very real vision, he heard God tell him to go out there and pushed the huge rock all day long, day after day. The man got up early in the morning. He was very very excited with this newfound purpose now of pushing the rock. And so he pushed until lunch. Then he rested a while. He pushed the rock until supper time. The man loved pushing the rock as it gave him newfound meaning in life. Day after day, he pushed. Day rolled in a week and week in a month. He faithfully pushed against the rock. After eight months, however, pushing the rock, the weak, sickly man was getting tired of pushing the rock so much. And in his tiredness, he started to doubt this calling or instruction of God. So one day, he measured from his porch to the rock. And after daily pushing the rock, he would, he would see that this rock hasn't moved at all. Not even an eighth of an inch. The boulder was in the same place as when he started. The man was so disappointed. He thought the dream was so special. And now after nine months, he saw his work had accomplished nothing. He was frustrated. His dream seemed dashed upon the rock. The man sat on his porch and just cried and cried. And he sat there crying. As he sat there crying, he heard the Lord ask him, son, why are you crying? The man replied, Lord, you know how sick and weak I am? And he told me to push this rock, which I've done for over nine months. And that dumb old rock is right where it was when I started. The Lord in his grace answered, listen, son, I never told you to move the rock. I told you to push against this rock. The man replied, yeah, that's exactly what I've done. The Lord told him to go look at himself in a mirror. And as an act of obedience, the man stepped in front of a mirror and looked at himself. The man was amazed. What was once a a sick, weak, frail man was now a man that had put on 
some muscle and strength. Suddenly the man realized that he had not been coughing all night. The man started thinking of how well he felt for several months and the strength that he had built by pushing against the rock. Then the man realized that the plan of God was not for the rock, but for the man. You see, that's what happens in our trials. Is that God allows trials into our lives because he's doing a greater work in us. He's doing a work that is strengthening us, perfecting us, establishing and settling us. See, we often don't realize what's going on in our lives through the trials until much later. Perhaps it's through another trial that comes that we discover that we've just been built up from the previous trial to now handle this next trial. James chapter 1, verse 2 to 4 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. See, it's trials that produces patience, and it's the patience that we need to endure trials. They go hand in hand, you see. We're built up through trials, but we're built up so that we can handle the trials. Let patience have its perfect work. Here, Peter says in verse 10, that after you have suffered a while, God might perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. That he might complete you, strengthen you, perfect you in him. And Peter recognizes this and he just kind of launches into this praise of God to him. He says, be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter's just reminding himself, realizing that God is in control and God is at work and God is working through each of the things that we are having to face and endure in this life. And it's all for a good purpose. And Peter just launches into praise looking at that. I hope you are encouraged today and you're praising God. You might be in a situation right now, I don't, I don't know, but you might be in a situation right now that has been the hardest thing that you've had to endure in life. And maybe you've spent time questioning God, wondering what's the point of it all. But trust the Lord and recognize, A, that he's the God of all grace. He's the one that will sustain you and carry you through. And understand that he's at work in what you're facing. And he's not going to let it be in vain. He has a plan and a purpose that when you come through, you'll recognize and see, and you'll see that it has been for your good. Because God is good. And he cares for you and he loves you. And he's at work in whatever you're going through right now. Well, let's wrap this up here. Verse 12, by Sylvanus, our faithful brothers, I consider him, I've written to you briefly exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. So we Sylvanus here is most likely Silas. Silas, the man that had accompanied Paul on some of his missionary journeys. He was a good friend of Peter. And, and most likely Peter's referring to Silas as the one that Peter's dictating this letter to. As oftentimes, that's what they would do. Somebody would be kind of accompanying them and writing down, you know, as the, the letter was being dictated. Silas is that man. By, dictate, by, by Silas, I, I, I've written to you briefly is the idea there. And written to you, again, exhorting and testifying, this is the true grace of God which you stand. In other words, Peter's saying, this is legit, everybody. This is the real deal. This is the true grace by which we stand. There's nothing else that's going to help you. There's nothing else that you can grab a hold of that's going to be a benefit to you. It's right here in the word of God. This is the true gospel, the true grace, and you need to be steadfast in the faith in these things. This is what Peter's saying. And then he says in verse 13, she who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. So Peter now is addressing this this person, this feminine person that's in Babylon. Now there's been many ideas as to what this is speaking of. Perhaps Peter, some believe that maybe Peter was in Babylon as he's writing this and he's speaking about a a, a person there. Uh, Many also believe that Peter's referring to Rome as Babylon and the she is the church there. And he's sending greetings from the church and he's doing it in kind of a code word because it's Rome where a lot of this persecution is coming from. So Peter's trying to be careful with his words not to try to, you know, open up a, a, a can of worms for those that are, are kind of meeting together and doing so perhaps secretly. And Babylon, of course, was a place where many of the, the Jews in their history had had to flee in exile and were, were, were not flee in exile, but were taken in exile. And so he's writing to those who were exiled around the world. And so using this terminology that would have been very familiar to them here. And he talks about Mark, not his real son, but most likely John Mark, the one that had gone with 
Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey that had come home early. And Peter was a good friend of Mark. And um, many believe that, that Peter was the source, really, of the material that the gospel of Mark was uh, recording. And so Peter's with Mark here. And he says, greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. So we're going to have to hold off on verse 14 until this physical distancing gets under control. And then we come together and we just greet one another with a holy kiss. It's going to be great, isn't it? All right. Okay. Maybe In some cultures, that's still relevant. In our culture, you might get an uppercut if you try greeting somebody with a holy kiss. So maybe it's a holy handshake. And again, just lots of hand sanitizer maybe now before you do so. But he says, peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Again, just Peter wants people to experience the peace in the midst of the storm, in the trial, in the difficulty. May the God of all peace come and guard your hearts and minds. Give you understanding in all these things. Just may the peace of God surround you here today. May you know that peace of God. May you know the grace of God. And may you find him sustaining you and helping you in all you're dealing with. Because that's the God that we serve. The God that cares for you and loves you. Amen? Amen. Worship team, come up. We're going to close just some time of response and worship to the Lord. And Just let this be a time where God, right where you are, can just move in your heart and just begin to plant these things and, and cause them to be firmly rooted and embedded down in your life and just be living it out, all right, in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for this church, for all our brothers and sisters who are gathering today, wherever they are. Just bless them. Encourage them, Lord. Thank you for this word and for the insights we have and the helps that we have, Lord, in you. And I pray that we might just experience and know the God of all grace right now in our lives and recognize that you are doing a work, Lord, in each and everything that we go through. So may we hold to you steadfast in the faith, looking forward to the day you're coming back again when we see and know that it'll have been all worth it. So use us, work through us, work in us, We give yourselves now in your name, Jesus. Amen.